welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is G. Alex Sinha, Assistant Professor of Law at Quinnipiac University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Virtuous Lawbreaking, which will be published in the Washington University Jurisprudence Review. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, I really enjoyed reading this paper and talking to you about it at the Chicagoland Junior Scholars Conference. And I'm glad to have you on the show to talk about it with with my listeners. Um, so for listeners who might not be so familiar with virtue ethics, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what virtue ethics is and what makes it distinctive and different from other ethical theories? Yeah, absolutely. So the paper is fundamentally engaging with this literature known as virtue jurisprudence, which, as you point out, is grounded in a kind of philosophical move, a development in moral philosophy known as virtue ethics. And so a lot of people are familiar with certain virtue, uh, sorry, certain normative ethical theories like consequentialism or utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. And that kind of theory would ask the question of an agent, what would you do? What could you do that would bring about the best state of affairs? What would maximize utility? Something like that. And a lot of people are familiar with deontological uh, ethical views, something like asking the question of what would be the duty that you have to adhere to in this situation? What are your moral duties? And Kantianism would be a fa fairly famous example of a deontological normative ethical theory. About 65 years or so ago, we started to see renewed interest among moral philosophers in a third approach, and that's virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is often traced to kind of Aristotelian moral philosophy. And the idea is you ask the agent, basically, what would a virtuous person do? So you kind of get some conception of what a virtuous person would be, a person who's brave and wise and prudent, and you kind of bundle these qualities together and you ask what a person who possesses those traits would do. And so virtue jurisprudence kind of buys into that backstory and analyzes the law from the standpoint of the virtues. Well, so to the extent that your article is kind of situated in this conversation around virtue ethics in the specific field of virtue jurisprudence. As I take it, your article is sort of pushing back against certain assumptions that a lot of people seem to have tended to make in that area. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how people have kind of deployed virtue ethics in virtue jurisprudence in the past? In other words, what's sort of the conventional wisdom about what it entails? Sure. So on the virtue ethical level, there's a great deal of disagreement. People debate what the virtues are. We sort of generally understand them to be relatively stable character traits. They predict how we will react emotionally to things. They predict how we will, how we will act physically under certain conditions. But there's a lot of variation in terms of What's the list of virtues exactly? And what are the implications of buying into virtue ethics exactly? In the virtue jurisprudence world, it seems that the methodology tends to be deployed in relatively conservative ways. I have kind of a general theory about why that would be, which is that Aristotelian ethics are particularly influential for um, Catholic moral thought. Uh, Aristotle's moral philosophy was very influential for Thomas Aquinas, who adopted a lot of Aristotle's views on the virtues. And so 
he tends to replicate some of the base assumptions that we make about and the baseline assumptions we make about the virtues. And so I, I think that virtue jurisprudence tends to be a relatively popular methodology for scholars who are heavily influenced by Catholic moral thought. And so they tend to deploy the methodology in service of conclusions, for example, in support of uh, morals legislation, right, regulating what we would consider as relatively private immoralities or maybe originalist constitutional interpretation, and certainly in favor of some general view that to be virtuous is to be lawful, that following the law, complying with the law, respecting the law is somehow very important to being a virtuous person. Do you think those are necessary conclusions to draw from virtue ethics and virtue ethics as applied in a jurisprudential context? Or are there alternative ways of understanding the implications of the theory? So that's basically what this article is for me, is my kind of effort to contest some of those assumptions. I mean, this particular article takes aim at the the notion of the virtue of lawfulness. It takes aim at the prevailing assumptions about the attitude a virtuous person takes toward the law itself. Uh, I'm working on subsequent projects that go after some of the other assumptions that I've mentioned. Um, But I do think there's a lot of room for kind of contesting the typical application of the approach, at least for the bit. And we should be able to have a relatively robust conversation and not necessarily assume that there should be a conservative bet to the application of the methodology. Why do you think it is that people working in the field of virtue jurisprudence tend to take law abidingness as one of the virtues. And do you think there are reasons for thinking that might be a mistake? Yeah. So I think part of it is just, and this is me speculating, that the the types of scholars who tend to be most influenced, for example, by Thomas Aquinas might already happen to be a somewhat more conservative in terms of their preferences, their policy, preferred policy outcomes, and their thinking generally. Uh, But some of this in terms of the virtue of lawfulness or some variation thereof, that's built into kind of foundational virtue ethics type work. So Aristotle took very seriously the notion of of lawfulness. So did Aquinas. And so if you are just inheriting that tradition, it's very natural to start from a point of accepting that as kind of a baseline, which is basically what it has become. There's just sort of this baseline for accepting lawfulness as anchoring our attitude as a virtuous person toward the law. Um, And the traditional exceptions to following the law under views like those held by Aristotle or Aquinas are relatively narrow. I mean, they're talking about, you know, really unjust laws, laws that might require you to do something particularly unjust to another person, Uh, laws in a particularly wicked system. I don't think the kind of system the United States has for all its flaws is the one kind of system that they have in mind when they think of a particularly unjust system. And so I think a lot of the the, the basic assumptions are, are built in at the ground level in the in the influential texts that a lot of people rely on in this area. I'm skeptical of those assumptions simply because there's no need for us to be wedded to any particular list of the virtues. We already 
acknowledge that Aristotle and Aquinas had various views that we consider to be regressive and we consider, you know, their work to be important and interesting and influential for various good reasons. But we're not wedded to, for example, Aristotle's views on women or his views on slaves. And we're no more wedded to his views on what exactly the virtues are. So there's a, a gap there for us to kind of explore whether we want to push back on any particular virtue, including the virtue of lawfulness. So maybe you could reflect a little bit then on the virtue of lawfulness, sort of a little bit on sort of how it's historically been understood and why it was adopted and kind of accepted as one of the virtues and what you think an alternative way of looking at the concept of lawfulness might be. Sure. So historically, part of the reason you might favor lawfulness is simply its consequences. If you have a community that sets down rules and people generally comply with the rules and respect the rules, that's going to have certain pacific implications, right? People will, will have settled expectations that are met by the conduct of their compatriots. People will generally get along and not do violence to one another on the assumption that the laws prohibit violence to one another. And it seems like the kind of thing that's important for maintaining a stable community. You could also see, and historically some, some people have seen a connection between a virtue of justice, which is a sort of peculiar virtue. It has a slightly different structure from other virtues, but a link between the virtue of justice and lawfulness. And even today, for example, Lawrence Solomon, who's a, a big figure in the virtue jurisprudence landscape, he has defended a notion of uh, uh, justice as lawfulness. So there's a sort of way of linking, following the law with kind of a, as a almost a, a prima facie indicator of being a just person or something like that. Um, in this paper, what I try to do is suggest if you take seriously the demands of the virtues and you think of you know, even a generic list of the virtues, you're going to have to build in some space for some notion of self-respect or human dignity, some sort of moral conception of self-worth of the individual. And I think if you pay attention seriously to that notion, whether you treat it as its own separate virtue, a standalone virtue, or whether it's part of some other virtue like humility or pride or self-righteousness, whatever you want to call it, in combination with the fact that even a relatively just system will treat certain groups in society as unequal or substantially worse than other members of society, you have the recipe for pushing back quite hard against the virtue of lawfulness. Well, so how do you think that this concept of self-respect and self-worth might inform or inflect or maybe even change the role of the concept of lawfulness as a virtue and in relation to how we would understand justice in a kind of virtue ethics, virtue jurisprudence context? Yeah. So my hope is that what I'm going to be doing through this paper is starting to at least highlight the possibility that when we are thinking about the virtues, we should be taking a much more nuanced view of the attitude people take toward the law and the relationship of the law to individual virtues. So the argument advanced here in particular is if you have some notion of self-respect built into any 
compelling view of the virtues, right? That's, that's the claim. Any list of the virtues, somewhere in there, you're going to have to have this concept. And if you accept that we have something like systemically disadvantaged groups in our society, groups that experience substantial disadvantage along important axes of life, that do so on the basis of morally irrelevant criteria, and that are in that situation of disadvantage, at least partly because of the law, those individuals are going to be licensed by appeal to their own self-respect to take a less than fully warm, embracing approach toward the law itself. They're going to be at the attitudinal level permitted to be, as a matter of their own self-respect, skeptical of the law, you know, questioning of the law, resentful of the, some of the demands the law imposes on them. And at the, at the level of their actual choices about whether to comply, they're going to have an open question. They're going to have at least a defeasible moral reason to contemplate violating the law in certain circumstances. And we can talk about those circumstances if you like. But the basic idea being the law cannot be treated as sort of uniformly inviting of the respect of the populace, even in a relatively just system if the system does not treat people equally across the board. So one of the things I thought was really interesting and provocative about the paper was your suggestion that marginalized groups and people interested in kind of various flavors of critical legal theory might find your spin on virtue jurisprudence interesting and and helpful. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more concretely about how that might be. And in particular, one thing I was wondering about was, do you see this as being descriptive of their perspective? Or do you see virtue jurisprudence as potentially, or your version of virtue jurisprudence as potentially being even helpful for people from, who come from that perspective to better understand and articulate the kinds of arguments that they're making? So I think that's a really interesting question. And I definitely, in the paper, make an explicit reference to feminist theory and to critical race theory, because I do think that there is an affinity there potentially between what I'm arguing and what certain theorists working in those areas accept. I also think that to some extent, I'm making assumptions that many theorists in those areas would reject. And part of the reason that is the case is that I'm very much meeting some of these conservative virtue jurisprudence theorists on their own terms. I'm buying into certain assumptions they're making um, to engage with them directly and to say, look, there's disorder in your own backyard, so to speak. But I do think that literature that is particularly attuned to the notion of systemic disadvantage could appreciate the possibility that uh, a kind of methodology that has been deployed um, in service of conclusions that they find difficult to accept or that they find potentially even offensive uh, might actually yield conclusions that are much more friendly to, to what they have in mind as well. And so I'm trying to sort of sketch out the affinity between the two approaches, between my approach and maybe the general thrust of certain parts of feminist theory or certain parts of critical race theory with the aim of bringing the two sides a little bit closer together, although I recognize that depending on your particular approach to feminist theory or critical race theory or what have you, um, that gap may never fully close. So could, could you give a couple of concrete examples of how that, that might work in practice? Sure. So, I, I mean, fundamentally, I do think that 
Um, so for example, I was reading, I was reading something by Catherine McKinnon yesterday and um, you know, McKinnon is very well known for taking a very hard line on the disadvantage women face under the legal system and the notion that social realities are reinforced in the law. And to the extent that women are disadvantaged in social life, they are disadvantaged therefore even more forcefully under the law, right? And so what I want to suggest is if you are, for example, somebody who is sympathetic to that point of view, if you believe that women are systemically disadvantaged and have been systemically disadvantaged, you can actually make the case for conclusions that would strike in the right direction of what I think she would advocate for from the standpoint of the virtues themselves, potentially. You might be able to fit a a reasonable view, a compelling view of the virtues into feminist theory or into critical race theory. And you would, you rely on inter alia, the, you know, the virtues of self-respect, but there could be other ways of cashing out the concerns that are expressed in feminist jurisprudence or in critical race theory. Um, And you could use the virtues to sort of animate that story, to tell that story and potentially even meet, you know, virtue jurisprudence on its own terms and articulate that story. Well, so how would a virtue jurisprudence or virtue ethical account of, say, a feminist uh, approach to these kinds of questions of gender inequity look different from a consequentialist or deontological account? And why do you think that would be a helpful way of reframing these questions? So I like the virtue framing in general um, for a variety of reasons. You know, one of the reasons philosophers started to gravitate toward it is that at least the proponents of the view think that it provides a richer lens for understanding moral deliberation. And so when you are in a difficult moral situation or even a relatively easy moral situation, but where you have to kind of weigh competing demands and competing courses of action, you are balancing the the competing demands of different virtues, right? There's what would be the wise thing to do here, the prudent thing to do here. Would it be, um, you know, benevolent of me to do this or would it be too selfish? And there are these sort of different kinds of considerations that pull at us and sometimes pull in different directions. And there's a sort of richness to that. It kind of captures the intuition, the intuitions we have about what moral deliberation looks like in a way that maybe consequentialism or maybe something like deontology, depending on how you cash it out, wouldn't get you. Um, and so there's a, there's a kind of a, a moral richness there. And so, you know, you ask kind of in connection with, with feminist theory, I'll actually give you an example maybe about race. Um, as I was writing this paper, I was writing it over the over the summer when the Black Lives Matter protests were were really widespread. And what I what I was thinking about was, you know, there's this whole literature on civil disobedience, right? There's this whole literature on whether we have this defeasible duty, prima facie obligation to obey the law. A lot of that was written after the civil rights movement um, in the United States in the last few decades. But if you look at that question about civil disobedience from the standpoint of the virtues, you get a kind of a different glimpse at it. You get a more nuanced glimpse at it. So, for example, Black Lives Matter protests. If you look at the individual situation of a member of the black community who is contemplating protesting or participating in the protest and who might appeal to his or her own conception of self-respect to justify violating a curfew, 
you get one story. You get a story about why a person in this situation who's systemically disadvantaged, who's who's potentially protesting police violence directed at his or her own community and a particular reason for doing that. Then you think about why might allies who are not in that community participate in a Black Lives Matter protest? Why might somebody who is not the target of police violence based on whatever characteristics he or she possesses participate in a protest like that? And it's not because of self-respect, but it's for some other reason. It's something like benevolence. It's something like having a, a regard for one's compatriots and wanting to see them treated equally by the police, right? And so you can't get that different story as easily through something like a consequentialist lens. And it's a little harder to get it even through certain deontological approaches, depending on how you, how you frame that. The virtues allow us to kind of apply a more nuanced and, and relativized analysis that takes into account the particular circumstances of each person, because to what is virtuous for any given person depends on his or her own circumstances. Well, so this is something I was kind of wondering about. I mean, in order to deploy a virtue ethical approach to thinking about lawfulness, do we need to have kind of widespread agreement as to what constitutes a virtue and why? Or does this approach allow for a conversation about virtue and the meaning of virtue as well? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, part of the criticism that deontologists and consequentialists would level against virtue ethics is that it is not determinative enough. Like we don't get a clear enough picture from applying the methodology about what agents ought to do under particular circumstances. And I personally think that that objection is to some extent overblown, but not entirely. There's something to it. And part of the answer there is simply that moral deliberation is hard. And it does involve balancing these different competing perspectives. And sometimes the right thing to do isn't any single thing, but rather to make a good faith effort to balance these competing demands and multiple possibilities are each appropriate. Nevertheless, I do think there's a lot of room to debate what the list of virtues ought to be. Part of what I hope the paper does is suggest that you know, even though there is disagreement about what the virtues are, right? So for example, Plato had a list of like four cardinal virtues. Aristotle, one generation removed, had a much longer list of virtues. He had them classified into different types. They had different structures. And those are just two individuals operating, you know, roughly in the same time period. So there is no particular reason to expect we'll have widespread agreement about what qualities amount to the virtues. But I do hope that the paper, what the paper suggests, this notion of self-respect has to be part of any good list of the virtues because moral philosophy is so heavily based on this notion of self-worth and individual worth. And so I'm hoping even if we have a conversation, and we should, about what qualities constitute the virtues, I don't think, based on what I'm arguing, there should be much room to debate that self-respect is part of that picture. And therefore, at least we get this kind of this anchor for pushing back on the conception that lawfulness is essential, especially among disadvantaged groups. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this concept of of self-respect. Do you see that as a virtue in and of itself or as a principle that ought to inform the way we think about virtues? So... I don't even know that I have the strongest feelings about that. 
I have in the past written on the virtue of humility, and I have defined it and sort of argued for a conception of humility that includes having an accurate sense of one's worth, which means that is just to say that you don't think too highly of yourself, but you also don't think too little of yourself, right? You recognize your strengths and your weaknesses. You recognize what you are worth and where that stops. And I could, I could very well imagine a reasonably sparse list, a frugal list of virtues that doesn't have something like self-respect as a freestanding virtue, but that does treat something like humility as a virtue. And that builds this into humility. So I'm inclined just sort of as a first pass at the matter to say it would be more than adequate to have it built into some more common conception of a quality that would be a virtue. And in this case, I would think of it as humility. Um, but Aristotle had pride on his list. He had self-righteousness on his list. He had other things that you could probably fit this into. And other theorists do as well. So I'm, I'm very persuadable on that. But I don't think it's negotiable that it will show up somewhere in the scheme. One question I had when reading your paper as well was whether you think that your gloss on virtue ethics and jurisprudence is compatible with a wide range of more radical, political, or critical uh, modes of thought, or only a subset thereof? Yeah, you know, I think it is possible. And I want to at least open the door to having that conversation, right? I don't think that the methodology should be assumed to be inherently conservative. It may be, for example, that I can imagine this, and I've never read anything like this, but there are certain, for example, feminist views that see the values and sort of moral approach women take toward matters as different from those fundamentally that men take. And if somebody adopted a view like that and tried to do a virtue analysis through it, they might say something like, we need different lists of virtues depending on whether we're talking about a male or a female person. And that leads to whatever challenges there are in terms of defining a spectrum or a binary on gender. But nevertheless, you could have somebody who tries to kind of create a, a fusion between a feminist approach and a virtue approach that, that generates a separate list of virtues for different people in society. Um, and I think that's something that would be really interesting to see developed. And I'd, I'd be very excited if somebody wanted to pursue taking virtue into that kind of a direction, just to, just to kind of see how broad of a debate we can have about the virtues. Well, so Alex, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect on how your approach fits into the field of virtue ethics and jurisprudence more broadly. Do you think other scholars in the area would accept your framing as being part of the same field that they're writing in, or would they see it as something different? And, you know, does it matter? Well, I certainly hope they would. Um, that's the aim here. So I, you know, I'm trying to offer this as an internal critique of virtue jurisprudence. I am sympathetic to it as a methodology, and I do think it has certain values um, that it brings to the table, and it's worth engaging in virtue-centered analysis. So I would like to see this actually shift how we talk about virtue jurisprudence. 
I've tried to, you know, buy into as many of the assumptions um, of a traditional virtue jurisprudence scholar as possible so that I am meeting them on their kind of field of play because I do want this to be part of that conversation. And in particular, what I'd like them to consider is much of the kind of strongest version of, of virtue jurisprudence that you see out there is, is built around this notion that the law is kind of an instrument that we can use to condition people to be virtuous, right? That people should follow the law because um, doing so over the long term tr trains us into being virtuous because it's hard to become virtuous. It takes practice. It takes learning. It takes discipline, right? And I want to suggest Maybe that's right, and maybe that is what we want to do. But if that's the case, we have to keep in mind that even in a relatively just system, the law can also condition vice. It can condition servility. It can make unjust demands of people, and it can make unjust demands in a cumulative way that disadvantages groups. And so if we are actually going to take seriously the project that virtue jurisprudence in many cases is about, which is promoting a virtuous populace, I want to say, even on those terms, narrowly defined. You have to confront inequality. You have to confront uh, in, inequitable application of the law because otherwise it's just ideal theory. It does, it's disconnected from what the law actually does to people. And so I would like to think that that's very much in the sort of center of what uh, a lot of strong virtue jurisprudence is about these days and therefore that this could help pull the conversation in a more uh, progressive direction, at least in a more for a more robust conversation about uh, the, the implications of adopting a virtue jurisprudence approach. Well, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a really great paper. I enjoyed talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will check it out because there's an awful lot more going on in the article. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I enjoyed it as well. It had something to do with the rain Leaching loamy dirt And the way the back lane came alive Half moon whispered go For a while I heard you Missing steps in the street